You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jeremy Schneider, and you're listening to the Earn and Invest Podcast. I thought it was totally complicated. As a doctor with a busy schedule, the last thing I wanted to think about was the stock market. My advisor used terms I was only vaguely familiar with, equities, basis points, expense ratios, and a whole lot more. I wouldn't expect my patients to be able to manage their own chemotherapy, right? Yet one day while reading the White Coat Investor blog, I came across a post called 150 Portfolios Better Than Yours. And the first one was so simple, just one mutual fund. The deep dive I later took into investing proved to me one basic truth. Crafting a perfectly functioning portfolio is quite possible with just a little bit of research. Jeremy Schneider retired at the age of 36 after selling his company Rentlinks. Since receiving this windfall, he has spent the last few years reading investing books, articles, studies, and listening to podcasts. He started Personal Finance Club, a community that champions the individual investor and dedicated to bringing financial education to all when recognizing that the same themes emerged over and over. Jeremy Schneider, welcome to Earn and Invest, front and center on the Personal Finance Club homepage in big font is the two rules. One, live below your means. Two, invest early and often. Is financial success that straightforward? I mean, is it that easy? Generally, yes. And I think that what you're just talking about, the the very scary complexities of the world of investing, I I feel the same way. You know, I, I think if you just walk around this world you know, pop culture would have you believe you should be like on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, like frantically waving pieces of paper or like day trading <laughs> GameStop or or <laughs> cryptocurrencies or futures or whatever. But like in reality, rich people get there by doing those two things. They spend less money than they make and they invest the difference. And even if it's not perfect, right? Because there is no perfect. We don't know what the perfect way to invest is. Like if you could invest perfectly knowing the future, you could become like a trillionaire in a few months. What you really need to do is just invest well, buying things that generally go up in value over time and spend less than you make. So yeah, I think, and, and, that, and that's why I use those two rules because it's such a scary landscape to step, you know, step into that you just need to remember that's really what it comes down to at the end of the day. We talk about those two rules and that's kind of the way you say wealthy people get there. On the other hand, that's not 100% your experience. You got there a different way by building a company called Rentlinks. While you're in the process of building this company, did you know those two rules? Like, were those front and center in your mind, or did that only come after? So, 
you know, that's, a, that's like a fair point, but I would say, you know, my story isn't that I just had a windfall and I've been rich since then. My story is before I sold the company, I was living below my means and investing early and often. And so at the age of 34, I had never made more than $36,000 a year. I was the lowest paid employee at my company. We were like barely profitable. I was paying my team more than I made and my net worth, not counting the value of the company was about $120,000. So I was well on the way to becoming a millionaire by traditional retirement age, living on $36,000 in Southern California. Then I sold the company for $5 million. My share after taxes was $2 million. And then what did I do? I didn't burn it all like the lotto guy who was a garbage man and won the lotto and became a garbage <laughs> man again. You know, I continued to live below my means and invest. And so now today, I, you know, I retired two years earlier. I haven't had a job in six years. Now my net worth went from $2 million to $4.5 million just by following those two rules. And so for sure, I had an acceleration you know, on that day in 2015, but I absolutely could be broke today if I wasn't doing those things. I could certainly be worth a lot less if I was spending frivolously. Tell us about the process of selling rent links. Was it generating a lot of income at the time? Our sales in the, the, the last year before I sold it was about a million dollars, just under like 975,000. And our profit was, I think that year, our profit was about 25,000. Wow. And, that's a big difference. Yeah. Right. And so traditional, traditionally companies are um, valued as a revenue or as a multiple of profit. So for example, if a company is making a hundred thousand dollars a year in profit, a buyer might be willing to pay like 500,000 for that. That means they would need to wait five years to like kind of recoup their investment. And then the seller would basically get five years up front and they, they could go on to do something else. And the reason that is, is because if it was like 20 times profit, then the buyer would never want to wait 20 years to get their money back. And if it was like one year times profit, the seller wouldn't sell. They could just wait a year. And so, you know, three to seven is kind of the range. That said, three to seven times 25,000 is only like a hundred grand or whatever. But I was creating a tech company that had recurring revenue that was increasing exponentially, that had strategic value to the acquire, a lot of customers, a lot of data. And so, and we were purposely spending all of our money to accelerate growth. And so, you know, profit kind of went out the window and they gave us a multiple of revenue because tech companies generally become very profitable over time. And so our revenue was a million and then they bought it for five million. Talk to me a little bit about being a boss. When you're at RentLinks, you made a point of saying that you paid yourself less than the rest of your employees. That's not typical. Where did you kind of develop that sensibility? I think it's a like fabric of things. And this, this seems crazy. And I literally don't think I've ever said this publicly before, but I, I remember reading a book in like Inc. Magazine or something when I was like, 18 or 20 or something like that. And it was about a dude who just literally paid himself the lowest at his company. And I was like, that's cool. Like it, it's not normal, you know, like that he can do whatever he wants. I like, you know, you just think as the boss, you're supposed to be on top of the pyramid and like whipping the people below you. But he's just like, no, like, I don't see it that way. Like, you know, I'm already fortunate in my life, you know, do it that way. And, you know, also my tech company, we never took venture capital or funding. And so we were by definition, need to be very frugal. We had to live below our means. If we spent more money than we made, we would go out of business um, because we'd be broke. So, and the way from the beginning that I funded the company was by doing the most expensive part myself, which was the software development. And so instead of hiring engineers for you know six-figure salaries, I would just do it myself. And then I would hire accounting people and salespeople and put those people in and eventually started hiring more engineers when we could afford them. It was partially out of this like inspiration that I re received, partially from just like my frugal upbringing, and partially out of necessity of 
we needed, you know, I couldn't be taking six figure salaries or because we didn't have that money. I think this plays into the role of why you started Personal Finance Club, but let's let's go back to RentLinks. Talk about the role of generosity, because as you talk about this, there's obviously a lot of good reasons to not have paid yourself much. But I also get the feeling like, especially after hearing you speak at Economy, that there was some portion of this that had to do with being generous with the people you work with and treating your employees well. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that's how I roll. I think that you win more in life if you do that. I think that if I was trying to look at my employees as like a commodity and I was trying to minimize their expense to like maximize my own return, I think I would have, I I think two things would have been bad. I think their lives would have been worse. And I think I would have ended up doing more poorly because they would have quit because they saw themselves as a commodity, not as like a human. I don't think they would have like felt empowered to, you know, they wouldn't have worked as hard while they were there. I definitely have friends who work for companies that just measure them by like how many times they're clicking a button on the screen each day. And so they simply just try to click that button enough to maintain their employment. Whereas I would never do that sort of incentive with an employee. I would say, hey, like we're on we're on the same team. I'm going to align our incentives. So if the company makes money, we both make money. And I want you to like take, you know, we had like unlimited time off and I did profit sharing and I was like, we're the same. And then I think they worked much harder for that. And so both those things are better. They were happier. They felt empowered. They made more money. I made more money. And how did they do once you sold the company? Did they also make money on that? Yeah, everyone had profit sharing. You know, our the first employee I hired in San Diego who was working for a temp company making 12 bucks an hour, she made like a she got a six a healthy six-figure check the day of the, the sale. Everyone got five or, or five or six figure checks. There's only five employees and two owners, me and my mom, who's a co-owner. So they all did well, you know, not as well as me. Like I got two million. But also, I was working on it for like five years before they joined. So there's, you know, that's just how it works, I guess. As I was looking at it, you sold the company when you were 34. You stayed on for another two years before you left. I remember at the Economy Conference, you showed us a video of your bank account as you were receiving the payoff on closing date for your business. It was quite a moment. And earlier, as we were talking, you mentioned you could have sat on the beach. You could have kind of done a bunch of different things. Instead, you decided to start Personal Finance Club. Why? What was driving you at that point? I mean, you you obviously had more money than you expected to have at that time. Why start this new venture? Yeah. So when I quit my job two years later, my net worth was around $3 million. And then, you know, I think they say like the reward for financial independence is an existential crisis because (laughs) for my whole career, I was basically trying to build this business and that was who I was. I was this like people kind of smart guy. I don't know people, but who knows if, you know, that was going to pan out or not, who was like trying to build this company. And then I did and it worked and I exited. And then the company was no longer mine. I couldn't even like log into the website that I built. It was so bizarre. And then it's like, well, what am I now? And for a few weeks, I was this guy that just sold a company and it was very exciting and very intense. And then two years later, I was just a guy that sold a company two years ago and was unemployed, you know? And so for a year, I just did what I thought I was supposed to do. I just traveled. I like played video games for a year. I just was like retired and it wasn't that fulfilling, you know, it wasn't didn't really make me happy. I didn't feel like people who are still have money as the primary tension in their life think that once that money problem is solved, their problems will be solved. 
But when that tension goes away, only that money tension goes away. And I think two things happen. One, their problems aren't solved. And two, at least for me, I realized that like having a tension in my life actually was a good thing. Like having something to work for gave me a sense of purpose and, and gave me a sense of accomplishment. And so after a year of playing this video game, I uninstalled it cold turkey. And I was like, <laughs> all right. I literally was talking to a friend. And she was like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I would love to like help. I would love to like help people with personal finance. That's just like what I do. Like I was already casually doing that with my friends. We would like meet and drink beers and like set up Roth IRAs. And, and we called it personal finance club as a joke because we were just like drinking and helping people with their money. And so I like registered personalfinanceclub.com. And yeah, that, that's my new tension. It wasn't even designed to be a business or anything. It's just like, I'm just going to go build this thing. I, I didn't really have any vision visibility into the space at all of like, financial influencers or whatever, but I started. You said it wasn't really a business. And I'm wondering, was there some profit making motive? I mean, here you are this guy who made a lot of money by building a business. You kind of searched for a sense of purpose. You said, okay, I like that tension. I'm ready to jump back in. Was making money part of the goal? I think originally being totally as honest as I can be with myself and with you on this like recorded <laughs> medium. I think the answer is no. If I wanted to make money, I would have started another tech company. To this day, like, you know, someone with my resume, and I'm not trying to give myself too much credit, but like just the way the market is right now, someone who has a master's in computer science, who successfully sold a tech company for millions, who's like in the prime of his career can like go, you know, fall backwards into money and and start another tech company with like, you know, designed to make money. And, and this definitely wasn't that and definitely still isn't that. And so I'd say, no, I did think I wanted to build something. And so uh, I had a goal when I started in January of 2019, my goal was to have 50,000 Instagram followers by the end of 2019. I was like, I want to have reach. I want to be important. Like there was no financial goal tied to that whatsoever. And for 2019, we had zero revenue. There was no, there was nothing to sell. It was just me, you know, spreading the good word. So yeah, I'd, I'd say no, there wasn't. And eventually I ended up releasing a product, which is like a terrible business model. And I just <laughs> launched a product just to like help people and, and have some revenue to grow the business. Yeah. Not at first. Why a tech founder, a tech startup guy, why personal finance? Like how did that draw you in? The only answer I can give is just because it's what I like. If I liked kite surfing, I would probably have a kite surfing blog. In fact, I was talking to my friend last night. There's a house that sold uh, in our neighborhood, not, not my exact neighborhood, a little bit away from me. That was like $3 million. And the dude who bought it was like a YouTube influencer guy who reviewed Nerf guns. And he just, I don't, I don't even know who he is. I just like, but I, I just know there's a lot of people like this who have like a super deep dive on a super specific topic. If I had a passion about one of those things, I think it would be that, but I just, I don't know why. I like helping people. I mean, to this day, like if I can, I mean, every day of my life, I like have a conversation with someone and you see the light go off and they're like, oh, wow, I can like make these few changes. And then you just see like the future, like it's kind of like a back to the future thing where the pictures are changing and like now this person's a millionaire in the future. And that just still pumps me up. You mentioned that one of the early goals was 50,000 Instagram followers. Was the big platform necessary? I mean, you could have done all sorts of personal finance stuff, helped people, done individual counseling. Why go big, so to speak? I think that maybe is rooted in my tech founding. I just like having a big reach. You know, one of the cool things about writing software is 
code that I wrote 15 years ago is still running today, being used by millions of people. And it's a really cool feature of the modern world. I don't, you know, I don't know if that's right or wrong. I think that if I was a high school teacher and taught could touch 30 lives a year or something, maybe that's better for the world. You know, I think that maybe is above my pay grade to decide like what is better, but I definitely am personally attracted to the idea of a broad reach. And I, you know, frankly, I like attention. I know that's like super corny to say, but like <laughs> someone who posts their face to Instagram every day, it's kind of, you know, I, I can't say that I'm not like, I'm shying away from being a public figure. I just, you know, I like having that like constant feedback and interacting with a lot of people like that. So I want to pivot to your philosophy when it comes to personal finance. On the Personal Finance Club website, we talked about those two big principles that are kind of front and center right as you click on the page. But there are also a series of about 10 characteristics or ideas, philosophies that you list out there on that website. I want to jump through some of them. We talked about the first and the second. Let's jump to... Your philosophy number four, which is you say invest in index funds. I'm interested, especially coming from kind of a tech guy, a startup guy, people like you tend to be very risk tolerant. And I think when we're talking about the equity equity market in general, going with index funds is about as conservative as you can be, right? I mean, you can go outside of equities and just have bonds, but above and beyond that, if you're going to do the stock thing, index funds is are fairly conservative. Is that still a rational way to go about things today, especially when you know we look at the next decade and everyone is saying, boy, the equity markets are, are going to have horrible returns? I mean, they say that every decade and you know they're right about one out of nine. So I'm not worried they're saying at this time. I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, I can't tell the future, but you know, you can't you can't make your decisions based on that type of negative speculation because it always exists. Um, you know, I would say, you know, as an entrepreneur, maybe I'm risk tolerant, but I'd say as an engineer, I am very like mechanical and uh, um, numbers based. And I just, you know, believe that they're not the most conservative. They're the most optimal. Um, any, any variance from index funds is going to add volatility without adding higher expected returns. And in investing, that's a bad deal. You know, you don't want your, your portfolio to be more volatile unless there is a reasonable expectation of higher returns. And so when you're stock picking or sector picking or ETF picking or whatever, you could certainly have a more volatile portfolio, which could be described as aggressive, but I would, I would just describe it as volatile. But that doesn't mean you're going to make more money. It just means, you know, you might end up above for some part of time. And like, you know, recent history is an example of that. You know, I definitely have my ear to the ground of the investing world these days. And a year or two ago, it was ARKK and Peloton and Tesla and, you know, every single hot tech stock and, and fellow Instagram influencers were just spouting how you should always be investing in tech because tech is the best, blah, blah, blah. And then there's a day like, you know, what, I don't know, about a year ago or something or the tech, th these tech stocks that everyone was touting and these ETFs and everything are down 50 to 80%. Whereas despite we have us being down this year, our, the trailing 12 year of the S&P 500 is up about 6%, right? Or the side of the trailing 12 month is about up 6%. So yeah, I see it as optimal, not as the most conservative path. I would imagine, especially as you've gotten a bigger and bigger platform that 
there's a little bit of an outcry of, you know, come on, Jeremy, what about crypto? Like, why aren't you talking about that? Do you feel a lot of pressure from some of the personal finance club members to give more a chance to some of these alternatives and things like crypto? Yeah. I mean, I get pushed on stuff all the time. Currently it's <laughs> currently it's life insurance, like insurance salesmen I've been posting about the last few days and they're just, they're just tearing to me. They're terrible. Like I've, as a group of people, I've never met anyone like more dishonest and aggressive, but, but, you know, I, I think I just have to be true to what I believe in. Like one of, one of the decisions I made with my business to date, and I'm not sure we're going to do this forever, but we, we've never taken any sort of sponsorship, affiliate deal, corporate money. We literally have no tie to any product or investment whatsoever. And, and so I can just, you know, I might be wrong. I'm just a dude. Like I have a, I have a subset of the information of the world, just like we all do. But from my perspective, I just have to give what I think is honest. And so I don't have a, I can't make an argument for why crypto has like core asset value that's going to increase exceeding the you know cost of inflation over time. Looking backwards, except for the last year, it's pretty good. Like if I could go back in time to 2010 and like put all my money into Bitcoin and be a Bitcoin trillionaire, I of course would because <laughs> I'm not dumb. But going forward, I don't. I don't see it. And so, you know, but I do have what I call the 90-10 rule, which is with 90% of your portfolio, buy and hold index funds, do the simple thing, guarantee yourself your fair share of, you know, all the market growth. And with your 10%, go nuts. And if you want to do some Bitcoin, if you want to do some stock picking, whatever, go for it. Because I think it like it's a release valve on that FOMO. And also it's like a lotto ticket, you know? So if if Ethereum does go up 100X and you own 5% of your portfolio as Ethereum or 2% or 1%, that's going to be plenty. And if it goes to zero, you're going to be glad you didn't do with all of it. Speaking of crypto and the insurance you mentioned before, your rule number seven is be cautious of misaligned incentives. Tell us about that a little bit. I mean, do you feel like we're being sold a false set of goods out there in the world to your average person trying to figure out how to invest their money? Yeah, that's kind of one of my things. But I guess you asked me, so I'm going to tell you. The insurance salesmen that are that are attacking me right now are like the perfect example because every one of them gets a commission for selling one specific product, and so the way they see the world, that product is the best. And I think largely they all believe it, but I think that they are just in this echo chamber of this misinformation, essentially, that's reverberating, saying how good it is, but that only exists because of the need to earn that commission. And there's a quote that I forget who said it, but it's like something like it's impossible to get someone to understand something when they're, you know, living depends on not understanding it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not going to convince an insurance salesman that their product is bad because they need to sell it to live until they switch jobs. But, you know, there's no shortage of former insurance salesmen who have seen the light <laughs> and don't sell that crap anymore. And so, you know, so as an individual, you know, it's really when someone asks me, like, what's a good advisor? What's a good product? You know, it's very hard to just like in a sentence point someone to like identify truth. But, but I think that is a good rule of thumb, which is if someone has an incentive to sell you something like a financial incentive or otherwise, include that in your calculus of, of the uh, information that they're giving you. Another one of your rules, which I wasn't going to bring up, but I will since we're talking about insurance agents, is this idea of never confuse insurance with investment, something that I hold to be very true, but maybe the rest of the world doesn't. I mean, if you, if you go on TikTok right now, I mean, TikTok is, a wild, is the wild west right now. And it, you know, 
in the TikTok ecosystem, it seems like there's a hundred insurance a- agents for every like one person giving like what I consider to be good information. But yeah, and, and when I when I speak out against this one specific type of insurance, which is like permanent life insurance that's touted as investment. Some people misunderstand that as why do you hate insurance? And I don't. I <laughs> have car, in- yeah, <laughs> I have car insurance. insurance. I have home insurance. I have health insurance. But I don't, you know, I use insurance to protect what it's meant for, protect the bad thing from happening. I don't try to commingle it with my investing where I'm putting in additional investing dollars to try to get a higher return because there's like a very simple truth with investing, which is if you route the, the value that the stock market provides through an insurance company. And then to you, there is an inherent loss there. The insurance company isn't magically providing above market values. They're taking fees and commissions and profits and cost of insurance and all that stuff. And so buy, just like you do with anything, spend as little as you can to buy the thing that you need, which is like whether it's term life insurance or your auto insurance or whatever. And then with the rest of your money, invest it in the more optimal way, like index funds. Your list of investing philosophies is fairly prescriptive all the way up to the end. The last one is simply do the right thing. Why did you include that? Why was that important to end the list there? I don't know. I think that I, I live my life with integrity as a, as a driving factor. And I, I think it kind of goes back to decisions like I made with my first company where I think the right thing was to pay my employees well, more than me, and to give them a piece of the business. I just think it makes the world a better place. And I think it's good for you. I think it's easier to sleep at night. You know, even when the insurance salesman attack me, like <laughs> I can rest easy knowing like maybe I'm wrong. I don't think I'm wrong, of course, but I'm definitely just telling my truth. I'm telling what I think is right. And I don't have to worry about something getting leaked or whatever, because all I am doing is telling, telling it straight as it is. And so it definitely just makes for a, a smoother life in my, in my opinion. Jeremy Schneider retired at the age of 36 after selling his company Rentlinks. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G and this is the earn and invest podcast. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. 
Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to robotics, quantum computing, and more. In state-of-the-art labs, startup garages, and anywhere in between. Our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest when growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies, and many of their members have benefited from the 46 IPOs or sale exits of their investments. Now you can truly diversify your portfolio by investing early in innovative private market companies at our crowd. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at ourcrowd.com slash EAI. That's O-U-R-C-R-O-W-D dot com slash E-A-I. We're back with Jeremy Schneider. He started the Personal Finance Club. This is a community that champions the individual investor and is dedicated to bring the financial education to all. Jeremy, let's talk about your investing philosophies. We talked about the last one, which is do the right thing. Nowhere in this list did I see build a business, have a startup, invest in venture capital. You know, those are some things you did. Why weren't those part of your investing principles? I don't really see that as investing. I see that as like growing your income. And I think that could be on a different list. And it's also not for everybody. If someone is a nurse and making seventy or $80,000 a year, like that person can certainly be a millionaire and they're helping the world. And maybe that is the great path for them. And I don't think it would be a rule for that person to, to start a business. If they wanted to, I would fully encourage that. I love talking to startups. But also like there's other opportunities too. There's like side hustles. There's like a whole like there's a whole like landscape of ways that you can increase your income. But I don't feel the need to be prescriptive about that. Although I do I do love startups and love talking about them. And so maybe I need to have like a, a separate portion of the website or something to decide to dedicate to that. The startup club. <laughs> yeah, personal startup club. That that might be the next one. So you started the personal finance club. You had this goal of, what was it, 50,000 followers on Instagram. I just looked today. You have a little bit less than 400 followers now on Instagram. Why do you think the account became so popular? It's 400,000. I feel like that thousand might have have gone dropped off. It's hard to say because sometimes I look at other people's content and think it's very good and they don't have the following. And so it's a little bit hard from the inside to see exactly where the difference is. But when I look at other very successful social media influencers, entrepreneurs, whatever you want to call them, creators, they generally have two exact things in common, almost without a doubt. One is that they're just hard workers. They they just crank out content, make videos, write blog posts, you know, write books, TikToks, tw- you know, Twitters, whatever. And you know, there's often focus among that breath, but they're often just doing a lot all the time. And there's and just naturally they just they they see them, they're just hard workers naturally. And then the other is just like a real authentic love for the subject matter. And so, for example, I met recently with a a girl named Kitten Lady, Hannah, who's actually in San Diego, like I am. And she has millions of followers, like hugely successful books, speaking deals, makes tons of money doing this. Just literally talking about like raising kittens and feeding them and medical issues and like all sorts of stuff regarding relating to kittens. And, you know, it's authentic. Like if, if I like cut off her business and cut off her social media and everything, and she just had to go living the life without the internet or something, she would still be loving kittens, you know? 
And so I, I think that I hope I have, I'm sure I have the the passion part and I hope I have the hard work part. And I think that's where it came from. And, and then there's a lot of, I mean, if you want to get the technical stuff about like what makes for a good Instagram post, we can talk about that too. I was about to say stylistically, because I've been watching your posts for quite a while and they're certainly very recognizable. Like I know a personal finance club post most of the time just by looking at it without looking at the top to see who made it. Is there something stylistically specifically that sticks out? You know, I think having really simple, punchy infographics has done well for us. You know, if everybody read three books on personal finance, I would just simply close up shop and find a new passion to talk about because there would be no need for what I do. But the reality is, is people have lives and don't read three books on personal finance club and are busy or on personal finance and they're busy. And so when I make posts, I try to fit my, you know, if I have like a 10th of a percent of someone's attention during the day or something, I try to like give a little nugget that is going to, you know, inspire or push in the right direction and have it be something that's like punchy and shareable. You have to balance like the outrageous clickbaity nature of social media with like the authentic truth of good information. Like if I was just posting like obscure lines in the US tax code because they're true, it wouldn't reach anybody. And so I would have no value. But if I was just lying and saying, you know, click here for crypto millions, then it would also would not help anybody. So you got to kind of find that balance. Has building personal finance club felt very different from building rent links? Compare and contrast them. I mean, one big difference is I don't need money to eat anymore. I mean, I don't need money from the business to eat. With early on in rent links, I every month I had to make money. You know, I was only taking thirty six thousand a year, but the first several years we weren't even making that, and so I was like living on credit cards. And there was just the the primary drive was just a survive a survival drive. And now with personal finance club, it's quite the opposite. Where I could never have income again. And you know, we don't know what the future holds. Maybe the economic world is going to collapse or something, but I think I would be fine forever. And so I like approach personal finance club from a di- very different, like a different agenda, which is like, I'm just trying to do the right thing. And any revenue that comes is, is kind of very secondary, which is nice. Cause then I can, you know, we can focus on growth. We can focus on content. We can focus on doing the right thing. We can focus on like integrity of our lines of revenue, stuff like that. What do you think is better for the consumers? Like your experience where you were a little bit maybe more hungry because you needed the cash inflow during rent links or kind of the passion and the freedom that you have with Personal Finance Club? Do you think one produces a better product than the other per se? If I come off sounding like an altruistic Boy Scout or something, I don't mean to like poo-poo people who are trying to make revenue. In fact, I think that drive is important. Like the thing that I made with rent links was connecting rental housing databases behind the scenes with like a bunch of different websites and a bunch of different property management companies. It was incredibly boring. It was not sexy or cool. It didn't directly impact a lot of people, but I think it indirectly made the world of technology and the world of rental housing much more accessible and easier to search and and more accurate and all that good stuff, which I think did help people find housing. But I wouldn't have been doing that if I was just trying to like feed my most immediate like gratification of like being altruistic and helping people. I was doing that because there is money, there's a financial opportunity there. And I think that helped the ecosystem. And I think what I'm doing now helps too. I think it's nice just to be able to 
do what I think is the right thing. Although, you know, I, I think maybe my reach is lower now. You know, I think that I could make a capitalistic argument that's saying if I was prioritizing revenue, I could hire more people and reach more people. And maybe if it's like, you know, 5% less altruistic, but a thousand percent bigger, the net impact on the world would be better. So I don't know. That's a good question. I've never even been asked that before. Well, it begs the next question, which is, is there a negative impact to financial independence? So what you just told me, I could say, look, Jeremy, the worst thing that happened is you became financially independent because maybe if you hadn't, you would have more hunger and drive to really push personal finance club into these amazing places that maybe you won't push it in. How does that sound to you? I mean, is there a, a negative aspect to financial dependence, especially for you where it was like very sudden? It's a good question. And I think there's two. Is there is there a negative impact in my life? And then there's a, is there a negative impact on society? On my life, I, I want to say no, because I like every day I get to make decisions to optimize my own life. You know, I did actually briefly join a startup for not, not that briefly for most of 2021, I joined another tech startup building an artificial intelligence API thing that I don't really have a passion for and could potentially be ex- exceptionally like valuable. And I quit it. You know, I'm still an advisor. I still think it's a great company. But when I was looking at my day to day life, I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm optimizing my happiness. I don't really like tech startup meetings and and just grinding in that way. And I was like turning, like my friends would be going golfing. And I was like, no, I can't have to work. And I was just like, why am I like, why am I saying no? I'm not even a good golfer, by the way. I don't really like golf, but <laughs> but just it like it highlights how like I'm like, I'm supposed to be retired. And now I'm like, all my friends are having fun and I'm not. I was like, I'm I'm doing something wrong. And so I'd say for me, no, for the greater world, I don't know. I mean, my intuition is to know too, because like there's just so few people that are financially independent that it doesn't really impact like the the world and, and a lot of people that are don't lose their drive it's not like jeff bezos is like like hungering for more golf games like i am or whatever most driven people just are driven so yeah i don't know i say no but it's a perfectly reasonable question most people who are driven remain driven regardless of the financial circumstances jeff jeff bezos is a perfect example let's talk about you like in this post financial independence world you're still very successful is is there a definition of what enough looks like to you where at some point you'll say, maybe I don't want to build this stuff anymore, or or maybe I've kind of accomplished what I want to accomplish? You know, I don't, <laughs> enough is a, you know, I think I have enough right now. I think I've reached enough. You know, if you're, if you never think you have enough, then you'll never be wealthy. If you listen to us on the podcast, you, you can't see behind me, like my beautiful two bed con- condo. And, you know, 10 years ago, I wouldn't have never even dreamed of something like this nice. Like I would have dreamed of buying the cheapest one bed crappy condo in the crappier part of town. And now I have like a nice fully remodeled two bedroom, two bath, like kind of near the beach, kind of near the bay. And so if that's not enough, that's like greater <laughs> than my 10 years ago dream could ever even have hoped for. So I think in one sense I have enough. And then what is my motivation going for? It's just to like basically do the things that I think is what life is about, which is to be happy and to help people. And so that is how I measure, and there will never be enough of that. I want more of that every single day, and I'm gonna. That's what drives me. And so, in terms of money and stuff, I have enough. In terms of being happy and helping people, um, still drives me. Let's talk more about helping people, especially in modern day United States. 
we look at financial education as very important, but I wonder how you feel about personal change versus systemic change. Like how much can we help people by teaching them how to be better with their own personal finances versus how much of this has to come from the government, right? From changing our laws and our politics and the way we do things. I think it's both. You know, one of the, the things that drives me is just the massive like financial inequity in the world and in the US, right? I mean, to it's 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 even hard to grasp, you know, the difference between like the bottom 25% and the 1% and the 0.1% and the 0.1%. It gets the numbers get crazy. And, and and I don't like wish for those people to have less money. And by the way, I'm not even in the 1%, I don't think by maybe for my age I am, but across like net worth, I think I'm in like the 3% or something. And and that's kind of scares me because I have millions of dollars. <laughs> and then you look at people who work all day, every day, and they like can't even make ends meet. And and I think the answer is both. I think part of it for sure, you can look at any individual and be like, you can be making better decisions. And I think that financial literacy can help those people. But I also think a lot of it is definitely systemic. And you can you can just see that in basically any stat that you look up. But the government is made up of people, right? And I think any long-term goal really comes down to education at the beginning, you know, whether it's financial or healthcare or whatever, if people are more educated and they're voting wisely and we have smarter kids growing up to make these smarter politicians, the world often doesn't seem like it's going that way. And I'm sure whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you, you agree with that. But fortunately, yeah, I think it's both. Personal Finance Club has built up quite a bit during this COVID pandemic. I'm wondering how you think it's affected your members' well-being in general when it comes to their finances. What do you think the effect has been? Of the pandemic? Mm-hmm. It's weird. A lot of stimulus was was made in 2020 and 2021. Rates were historically low for years. Now, all of a sudden, we have this kind of like rebound effect of, of high inflation. And I just, just looked up mortgage. I just Googled mortgage rates yesterday. And the first number that popped up was 6.875. I was like, what? Because like I was used to hearing numbers in the twos and you know, home prices are really high. And so I think like these macroeconomic things that are happening are are moving around. But I think an individual's life largely still comes down to like the basics, like spend less than you make and invest a difference. I know people trying to buy a house at this exact moment, it definitely sucks because like prices are super high. Now rates are going up. I think those things will probably you know, settle out one of these days. And it's hard, you know, I think when, when people see these macroeconomic things happening, they ask, you know, what do I do? They want the speculation. Like, when when do I buy now? Do I buy later? What's going to happen next? And, and I don't know, you know, nobody really knows, like these things are generally pretty efficient markets, which means we don't know what's going to happen next. And my answer is like, I don't know what's going to happen next, but what, it, what you should do is spend less than you make and invest a difference. And if, and if to buy a house right now, it means you're going to like overextend your monthly payment 2x. Don't do it. Rent for a while more. Yeah. My first house loan we bought while I was starting residency, it was a doctor's loan, which meant there was no money down. And the mortgage, I think, was 8%. And I think we yeah. felt good about that at the time, which is just blows my mind compared to you know a year or two ago. No, I looked up. I was born in 1980, and in like mid 1981, the average national mortgage rate was 18. percent I mean, that was brief, and but I mean, it was, it was over 15 percent for a while. But yeah, it, I mean, that's like loan shark numbers. And so, you know, we definitely have been like 
living in a very, very low rate world for a long time, but that's not typical. And I also think home prices are going to come down if those mortgage rates stay high because there's going to be less competition for those big ticket houses. So I'm wondering what you think of the great resignation, right? If if rule, the two rules are live below your means and invest early and often, do you think the great resignation has been a good thing for your average employee? I like it. You know, I think that as a business owner, if you keep treating employees crappy, they're going to, you know, I feel like a lot of people who are pro-capitalism look at it from the business's perspective, but the beautiful part of capitalism is that employees can quit too. And they can look out for their own best interest and they should. And I think that when the market's good or other companies are going full remote or they have enough money to, to not need to work or whatever, they can quit and businesses have to respond. And so, because if not for things like the great resignation, then you have you could have like sweatshops in the extreme case where everyone has to work in terrible conditions. And so I think that's part of the free market at work forcing companies to treat their employees better if they want them to stay. And, and so I like it. Well, Jeremy Schneider, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today. I think your teachings are a great example of the idea that we make out investing and saving and building a financial plan very, very complicated. And I think with your basic investing rules, you show us that it's quite possible and that we can follow these rules and have positive outcomes. And last but not least, you remind us that we should do the right thing. We should be generous, whether that means that we are an owner of business, a business and how we pay our employees, or whether it means how we invest. And if we do the right things, and if we pay attention, uh, we will do just fine. I wanted to end this episode the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where people can find you. So first and foremost, what's coming up in your life? What's happening with the Personal Finance Club? I think we're going to start a show in the next month or two, like on YouTube weekly with just like the like different segments about like trivia and what's happening in the news and all that good stuff, just because I think people want to see more long form stuff and maybe have it be a podcast format. And otherwise, just we're going to just try to keep creating good content. We're yeah, making some YouTube posts. We're doing a lot more on TikTok and Instagram. You know, more of the same. I know it's kind of boring, but like that's kind of my investing philosophy too, which is just stay the course. And I think we need to. And yeah, you can find me on you know Google Personal Finance Club, Instagram Personal Finance Club, TikTok, YouTube. Pretty easy dude to find on the internet. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast, and I have myself, Doc G. I'd like to thank Jeremy Schneider of the Personal Finance Club. That's a wrap. Awesome. We did it. Thanks, did Doc. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold on here. All right, this is kind of worrisome. I hit record and you hit OK, right? It still says recording on my top left. Weird. Why doesn't That's a it good show sign. on mine? Yeah, no, no, no. I'm positive we hit record. Oh, there it is, recording. For some reason, it just disappeared. <laughs> I had a panic moment there. Oh, um, so It'll be fine. We can do it again, but that would suck. I always end, and again, I'm still recording because I usually put some of this as the after show. Is there anything we didn't talk about? Anything like through this conversation? You're like, wow, I really wish we covered X or or this is really important to personal finance club that we didn't we didn't touch on. Hmm. I don't know. Um, 
I think you did a great job. I mean, there's a million more things we could talk about. I always love just people breaking down for people like how to get started investing. I feel like oftentimes, you know, I'm like, it's easy, just find index fund. And then like, there's like a wave of people who are like, how? Oh. <laughs> yeah, like, and really? Like, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I literally, every third post is just like, what funds to click on to do this? Um, and so there's always like that natural response. Um, sometimes, sometimes it's like on the post. I'm like, this is what funds to click. Like, go to the website, and people are like, but how? I'm like, but how? What? I, <laughs> I don't know what else to show you, man. It's funny when I so I had a, a financial advisor forever, right? And so I understood like the most minimal. Like it was a, he was a good guy. I knew him. You know, he discussed everything with me, but I really didn't get it, obviously, because you don't usually until you do it yourself. Yeah. And the two two kind of content creators that helped me really through it was one Jim Dolly, the white coat investor. Cause he did, he had that, that post that 150 portfolio is better than yours. And it was just like, so simple, right? He just listed 150 portfolios starting with, you know, number one, put everything in an S and P 500 index, right? Number two, pick a target date fund. Number three, a simple bogle heads, three fund index. Like, and so it was uh. like that, that just blew my mind. I'm like, Oh wait, there's some really basic ways to do this. The other was Christy and Bryce from Millennial Revolution. They actually did a series that was 20 or 30 posts that started with, so you want to invest in ETFs and walked you through going into Vanguard, or I think there were a few other places. They did it in two or three different places and showed you how to specifically go and pick out your ETFs and rebalance every few months. And And they had a series of posts that actually showed them clicking on the buttons and doing it. Yeah. And uh, and I was amazed. I'm like, why have I been avoiding this for so long? Something that's so ungodly straightforward in the end. Right. No, it's it's very it's one of those things that you're right, until you until you like click the button yourself, it's just so abstract and scary. Yeah. Um, but I actually have the same, like I have a video series where it's like it's like literally me being like, All right, I'm on <laughs> vanguard.com, I'm clicking, I'm clicking buy and sell, I'm clicking funds, I'm typing in the ticker symbol. Um and I think when people see it, they're like, oh, okay. And you know, and you know, a lot of people like ask me like, how much do I need to start investing? And they're so scared. It's like, just do go to Fidelity and put 50 bucks in yeah. and and like just click the buttons and, and then come back a week later and it's gonna say 51 bucks or it might say 49 bucks. And I think, you know, then they'll like it like kind of like releases the the scariness of of the unknown there. I always struggle too, because I, I know a lot of financial advisors and people who were kind of fund managers, those kind of things, people who I believe actually really do have the right ideas in mind. But when you get into the nitty gritty or you read their books, it just becomes so complicated, right? And so the real question comes down to, you know, does it need to be that complicated or not? And we have this group of people who says it most definitely does, right? They say your average person just doesn't understand. They don't understand risk. They don't understand asset allocation. They don't understand what's really behind investing. Um, and I always struggle with that because I hear them and actually I've read their books and they make some good arguments. Yeah. On the other hand, for your average Joe or Jane, you know, having a three fund portfolio or putting it into VTSAX or, you know, having a target date fund with a certain amount of bonds, a certain international, a certain national really suffices. Yeah. I mean, I think people who are super, super deep on a specific topic get so focused on like the minutia, like the little tiny um, micro differences between two things. And academically, I find that stuff very interesting, but like, you know, 
I spend my days on Instagram with like real regular people who like just have regular jobs and they just make regular money. And like their problem isn't like, oh, I like, I should have like done a small cap value weighted port (laughs) tilt because that was slightly outperformed. You know, they're like, I bought two jet skis on a credit card (laughs) and, uh, and I don't know what a 401k is like, okay. Um, I can work with you. <laughs> let's not buy depreci- things that depreciate with massive interest and let's put money into things that go up in value. Um, and, and, and so, you know, <clears throat> that's, that's where my head's at. And I mean, and another, another one is like, sometimes people talk about like, Oh, I got to do estate planning for super high net worth individuals. And, and so they can pass on the most of their kids. And I was like, do you know what the like estate Actually, I'm curious if you know this. And no pressure because it's like this is like a very difficult question. But do you know what like the estate tax exemption is? Like how much money? You... That, that, that's a loaded question because it changes depending on what year it is and who's in political power. But that's true. wasn't it? Wasn't the most? So it was like 11 million. I think didn't it zoom up for a number of years to like up to 20? I, I can't remember. It, it varies though, depending on on which legislation. And I know there was some timed legislation where there was there were a few years where there was no tax actually at all. Right. My grandmother, my great yeah, my one of my grandmothers. That's the time died. to die. You know, she died when there was like there was like a two year period where there was none. But I, what is it? Is it 10 or 11 million now? Yeah, it's it, it just it was eleven million last year. Now it's twelve million yeah. for an individual, twenty four million for a couple. Yeah, um, and, it's and a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money, right? And and so like like that simple fact that like you don't owe estate tax if you're a married couple, you don't owe estate tax on the first twenty four million. Kind of like takes out the whole like tax optimization estate thing. And then if you're saying okay, what well, if you have over twenty four million? My answer is like I don't care about that. Like as a, <laughs> personally, like making sure someone who has more than twenty four million leaves more than like minimizes yeah. the tax. In fact, I think that number should probably be lower. Myself included. Like I have you know I've got four and a half million. Like if I were to leave three million tax free to my kids, and then the rest feel is good about tax, it. Yeah. Yeah. Like great. And like when, I don't have kids, but like one of my worries about having kids is like I want them to feel the benefit of like the traction of making their own way in life not just like yeah. guess what you got i optimized your tax over 24 million like who cares and i can't i mean i came from what what i now would recognize as wealthy parents but probably never did and and they're i mean a, a good deal with them is like you've got to kind of also learn how to do it on your own <laughs> like like this is going to make you a happy successful person is is you've got to yes. go out there and you know so we'll do the easy stuff like we'll cover your college but you know, like so we we had tons and tons of benefits like i came from a lot of privilege so i can't complain but there was still the underlying of okay we're not just going to leave you millions of dollars like you've got to you've got to figure it out so yeah, that's good. I mean, I think that's, I, I would struggle like, cause I, I felt the tension of money every day of my life growing up. Cause I mean, I, but I, with you, like, I think I had very fortunate parents and we never didn't have money for food and stuff like that. But like, you know, I couldn't get the super size at, at McDonald's for cost reasons. Like, I think my dad was like, was like militarily or militaristically frugal. Um, but you know, I guess I could, hopefully do the best for my kids too if i ever have some how's the uh, book going so it's it's a work in private the book itself is so we have our final manuscript which i sent you actually so that was the final manuscript um it is going to printer soon um i've been working on 
my marketing plan, which is not a comfortable thing for me, but I'm trying to get over that limiting belief. Um, so I've been working on, I've, I've sent out a bunch of pitch stuff to media, which has had mm, kind of success. I'm getting myself on a bunch of podcasts. I have, you know, a bunch of friends who have blogs and, and bigger brands. So they're going to, you know, help me by writing reviews, that kind of stuff. But here's, I'm kind of in this interest. I think there are a few paths really to, let me separate it. It's been a great process and I'm really happy with what I came up with. It was a struggle though, like, you know, writes and rewrites, but I'm really happy where it is. So that part is very good. The actually getting it out into the world, what I'm kind of focusing on now is um, I'm trying to make that work. So that 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 to me is a little bit harder, um, but I'm excited about that process. And I'm just trying to find ways to get it out to people. One of the things I'm really excited about is I really feel like we made a good book trailer. Um, and in fact, one of my routes to success in getting this to as many people possible is, is to really get traction on the book trailer. Because I think the book trailer almost hands down, most people have told me that the book trailer, once they saw it, they're like, okay, I want to read that book. Um, so that that's one of my strategies besides the podcast, media, doing some book clubs. I'm going to be giving, I've gotten some sponsors to give away a bunch of books to Camp Fi. So I, I go to a bunch of Camp Fi's. I usually talk at them. Do you know who Stephen Boyer is? He does the Camp Fi. It's like 50 to 60 people. Yeah, like, yeah I've heard of Camp Fi. I've never been yeah. there. And so we're going to give away a few hundred copies, actually. Um, nice. So, yeah. So it's been good. It's been definitely a huge learning experience. Um, yeah. I'm, I've never written a book, but I, I definitely think that must be like a tough marketing push is because there's a lot of books out there and, you know, it doesn't have the, <laughs> I mean, I literally was on the beach. I played volleyball this weekend and I was on the beach and like looked at my phone and I was like, if you're financial advisor is trying to sell you insurance as an investment. You don't have a financial advisor. You have an insurance salesman. Right. Like it took me like whatever, 15 seconds to make that video. And I posted it to TikTok. And then like, I checked like 20 minutes later, I had like 80,000 views. Like it yeah. was like, I was like, yeah. and as it's like, it's a weird world where something that, I mean, I happen to agree with that message, but something that low effort can get that much instant traction. And then like a book that is like, how people I think really deeply learn and improve is, is just harder to get through. And in, in like today's like instant feedback culture, you know? Well, there are two things there. One is um, certainly short form is King, right? We know that TikToks, Instagram, et cetera. But I will also tell you, it's a different world. Like for better, or for worse, writing a good book is a very small portion of being successful. Like yeah. if you wanted to write a book, your platform is big enough. You're probably going to have a lot of success because so much of success right now is getting that initial push of media, which yeah. means you have to have a lot of followers as well as the initial push of people buying. So yeah. like if you have enough followers, if your platform is big enough, you know, you put your book up and, you know, if you have a million Instagram followers and can convince 1% of those to buy the book. Um, you know, that's in the first week, for instance, that's a huge success. Um, so some of it depends like a lot of it is, is the, the people who have bigger platforms tend to do much better. Right. So if you yeah. ever wanted to do but that, even if you, you like when you say it's a huge success, sorry. Um, when you said it's a huge success, like those numbers seem so bad to me, like 1% of, uh, of a million is what 10,000 and 10,000 
like what do you earn per book? Like two bucks or something? So you make so it's not, it's definitely not a great so if you want to make money, that's not the way to do okay. it. Um, but and, just but, mean as but, far as books. But yeah. for me, kind of like you, is I'm in a way, way, way post financial independence lifestyle. So right. I don't really do anything. I mean, I do little things for money because they're just so easy, but I don't really for me, money's not a motivator. Um yeah. Is it just about like, you think that's a message that? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, this is, I think. um, So in this book, I've been able to talk about what's important to me, like what I feel like I've learned, like what, what I feel like I can give to the world. Same with the podcast, actually. Like the podcast very much is a reflection of me and and how I can, I can be myself. And I've done a lot of thinking about life post-financial independence and, and kind of what really makes us happy. Right. And so what I found makes me happier or the closest to contentedness I have is, is aligning my life with kind of what I believe my true purpose, identity, and connections are, right? So doing the things that I find valuable that reassert who I am as a person and put me in contact with people who I connect with, and then kind of finding those things that I care deeply about and feeling like I'm making progress towards achieving some of them, right? So I was achievement junkie up until financial independence. So achievement is not necessarily always my friend because it it creates discomfort and and you know it, it creates the sense of just like the hedonic treadmill like buying things you buy something and it makes you feel good for a second then you're buying the next thing well that's kind of me and achievement hmm. so I, i've really tried to focus on okay what kind of things do i really like doing that means something toward to me that i feel like i can make progress in but that i also enjoy the process of doing them so like regardless of what comes between my and your episode of this podcast, I had a really good time doing it. So, Hey, it's great if 10 or 20 or 30,000 people listen to it, but even if they don't, I can at least say, Hey, I I came out of this. I had a great conversation. I connected with someone who was cool and it gets me closer to what I think I want to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Same dude. We're, 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 we're in the same place. It's a good place to be in for sure. But yeah, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you don't have like challenges in life. Oh yeah. I mean, always I have kids. So kids automatically oh, challenge. So I have a 17 year, 14 year old. So that's oh, going to nice. introduce challenge whether you want it or not. But Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the daily crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 